I don't know if it's much of a segue. Well, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about the, bl- the good old blow and go. The good old what? The blow and go. Remember the blow and go? The blow and go. That sounds like a you, uh, cheap one night uh, stand. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you a question. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Everybody, welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast. You're here with good old Jamesy and bad old Brando. He's a bad man. Wish him out to the cornfield. Do you remember that? Do you remember that from Twilight Zone? No. Wish him out to the cornfield. The little kid from Billy Mummy from uh, Lost in Space. Yeah. He played this little kid, and I'm trying to remember his name. But he had the. He was born with these mutant powers where he could like turn you into anything if he didn't like you. He'd turn you into like a jack in the box or something. Oh, right, right. And, no, I do uh, remember that. And then every, nobody could look at the. They'd be like, ah, screaming. And so he would wish him out to the cornfield. You're thinking uh, uh, Twilight on the movie. No, no. They did a they remake did, in the did, movie. They yeah, the they did a the remake movie, in the yeah. movie, but the original was on the series. I remember with that one. Uh, yeah. Like really, really getting to me as a kid. I like it. That one was a trippy episode. <laughs> wish him into the cornfield. I say that at home. Nobody laughs. Yeah, I remember that. You're one. a bad man, Mr. James. You're a very bad man. <laughs> and I'm going to make you pay. In the uh in the movie, right? He he was down at the down at the air arcade playing video games. He was right about my age when I saw that movie. I was like, <laughs> I relate to this kid and then it got all weird. I'm like, dude. <laughs> oh, that was that's a good scene too where like he makes everybody come over to, to watch, watch the, his TV shows. Yeah, yeah. And he loves them and if they don't laugh, Bad things happen. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, did you did you learn the the blow and go when you were in scuba class originally? Did you yeah. Where was it taught as the blow and go, or was it taught officially as like the emergency ascent? Uh well, I think it was you know labeled the emergency ascent in the book, but the instructor just called it a blow and go. And then in the that was commercial a school. Randy? Old Randy. 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 Is that that's how Feeling he uh, a little bit so of did, Randy. Did he describe it as like, okay, so this is the blow and go. We gotta do this, this for on dive yeah. four. Randy's very serious. He's you know, he's an engineer, that's what he's I'm a t- software yeah, engineer. I'm trying to figure out how he would how he would approach teaching this to, to his students. He just it was just like by the book. There was no personal opinion injected into it. It was like, I have to teach this. This is part of the standards. This is what we have to do. This is how you do it. He demonstrated it, and we did it. Now, what about uh, when you were in commercial school? Did you guys have to talk about a blow and go? Oh, yeah, and that's where they just called a blow and go. And 
because the scuba section, the scuba portion of the commercial school was very hardcore. It was just physical fitness mostly, just swimming. We we swam for almost a week before we ever put scuba gear on, and it's no BCD. It's just a harness, and you swim, you swim, and tread water with holding weights and all that shit. Yeah. So we, if you have to do go. an emergency ascent, it was just just go, and just blow and go. Baby. What'd you have Drop to do it from? Oh, no, we didn't have to do it like anything deep because we just had the pool. We were in New Jersey, outside. No, nobody was doing it. Now, that. what about when you were in, uh, when you were going through instructor school? Because oh. I remember like when I was a kid at the shop. Yeah. Right? I was the, the little wet behind the ears, this new kid. And it was funny because all the instructors used to talk about in order to be. <laughs> right, right. They punch <laughs> no, no, you in the stomach. No, no, no. <laughs> no, it was the first guy that. Was probably being honest. Yeah. Said he had to do it from twenty or thirty. Yeah. And then the instructor who was a little bit older than him was like, "Oh, we did it. We had to do it from 60. And then the other guy hears that and he goes, "Oh, we had to do it from a hundred feet." And it just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. No. Everybody that talked about having to do their controlled emergency <laughs> swimming ascent to pass their instructorship. Yeah. You know. You know. By the time I showed up to my IDC, I'm thinking you got to do a. CISA from uh, right. like 100 feet of water. You're coming out of a submarine. Um, <laughs> now, my partner in the service, my, my uh, immediate supervisor, uh, Master Sergeant Padilla, Bob Padilla, great guy, stayed friends for, he just passed away not recent, or not too long ago. Anyway, Bob Padilla is uh, an old PJ, a pararescue, which is like special forces for the Air Force. He's, this, he was this in the 60s, okay, in Vietnam. He's been... He's the guy they send behind enemy lines to pick up uh, wounded, our wounded soldiers, keep them alive, and get them back. Uh, he's also he also picked up the astronauts. You know, he's one of the guys that jump in the water to get the astronauts. Lots of great stories. But part of the PJ school is you have to do Army Airborne shit, and then you have to go through Navy dive school. So their training is pretty long, and then they go to medic school for two years. The long story short is he would talk about Navy dive school to me because he loved that I was into diving. He gave me his stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, I have his old double holes regulators. and He said, yeah, it, it's 100 feet. You go, you're go, you in a bell, and you're all in there, and one at a time you come out from the bell, and there's a ring around the outside, a steel ring welded on, and you hold on to it, and they hit you in the gut, so you exhale all of your <laughs> air, and you go up. Yeah. Oh, that's wild, eh? That's what he told me, and, and Bob is not an exaggerator. I mean, he wouldn't. He always played down his training and, and his missions and stuff like that. And a lot of stuff he couldn't even talk about. He played it down, but you know he was a you know he's done some shit. You, you could just tell this guy's been through some shit. Well, I look back like to my original open water manual, my Patty open water manual. Is that your original right there? This is uh, this was the original that I had. But it says um, to make a buoyant emergency ascent, the final out of air option is the buoyant emergency ascent, which requires dropping your weights and or inflating your BCD and exhaling continuously, making the ah sound as you rise to the surface. <laughs> and then it says break the surface and immediately come for the land of the, the license. license. <laughs> exactly. But for the... Um, it's by the book. Yeah. But for the controlled descent, you know, remember they said that uh, if you don't have an alternate air source available or your buddy's too far away to provide it and the water's 30 to 40 feet deep or less, you may decide to make an emergency ascent. 
simply involving swimming to the surface, exhaling continuously, making an ah sound into the regulator to release the expanding air or to prevent lung expansion injury. The emergency swimming ascent is not a difficult exercise, and you'll have a chance to practice it in the confined water training session of this module, which differed from the buoyant one where you were just you weren't mm-hmm. you weren't controlling the speed out of your BCD. You're just shooting to the surface yeah. as a last ditch effort. Yeah, you do, every your weights are gone and you're out of control. Yeah, yeah, you were uh, rocketing to the surface, yes. right? Versus the controlled one, which you were trying to do, basically which they were swimming to a certain extent. Yeah, right? basically trying yeah. to. At you least, know, they, they they look at it like, okay, hey, you're you're in twenty feet of water. Your yeah. buddy's forty feet away from you. Mm-hmm. You know, you could shoot to the surface. This sounds like a test question. <laughs> sounds, what should I do? What should I do? <laughs> Find a new buddy after you get to the surface. <laughs> Maybe it was your fault. Maybe your buddy's like, where the yes, blankety maybe, blank maybe you is need he? to have a buddymanship retrospective. Again, he's gone. <laughs> so I found, uh, I looked back to the open water sport diver manual that Jepson, Jepson put, yeah, that they put out back in the 70s. And in there it says to begin the emergency swimming ascent with a push off the bottom or with several strong kicks. Keep the regulator in your mouth. Look up and try to breathe from your regulator as you ascend. If your buoyancy compensator has an inflating system, use it if necessary. But remember, an emergency swimming ascent depends primarily on kicking, not on excessive buoyancy, compared to what they called at the time an, an EBA, yeah. an emergency buoyant ascent. Yes. Where you were you were not dumping or uh, you were, you were dumping your yeah you were dumping mm-hmm. your weights you weren't controlling any any ascent speed with your BCD and then they mentioned that uh, when you were about ten to twenty feet from the surface throw your arms out shoulders back feet forward while arching your back this flares your body to create a large surface area and drag to slow your ascent speed that's near the surface yeah. How cl- like that's gonna help in that last <laughs> <looks> two feet. <laughs> it looks like a like a reverse well, swan. It looks like a reverse swan exactly. dive, like going to the yeah. yeah. But I think it was mostly to better prepare yourself. It's got to be lawyers. Uh, that's got to be lawyers. I think it was mostly to prepare yourself for the mouth to mouth resuscitation. <laughs> when you got, so they can see the dead body. When you get your dead ass to the surface. Uh, so. The logic is from the bottom till about three feet, you do 200 feet a minute. <laughs> but in the last three feet, you you're going to slow it down, down to about, like about 80. <laughs> We're going to get down to 80. 80 feet per minute for two feet, two to three feet. Shouldn't make fun of them. I mean, I guess they're believing they're doing the best practice. But, I mean, just looking at it in a, from a logic point of view, you're going, Really? Now the the NAS, yeah the NASDS manual from the the early eighties Safe Scuba had a pretty detailed description of the controlled out of air ascent procedure in cases where the diver has checked the possibility of dependent action and evaluated it to be unsafe or impossible to properly perform the next choice must be for independent action the diver must perform a controlled out of air ascent. It is important that proper technique be learned in order to minimize the possibility of injury. Emergency ascent procedure must be as simple as possible. It should require a minimum of actions and choices. The rule should admit no variations. If you are diving within the 100-foot safety limit for the beginner sport diver, the only thing keeping you on the bottom will be your weight device. 
Ridding yourself of the weight device will bring you to the surface. Here is the correct controlled out-of-air ascent procedure. You realize you are out of air. So they give you, uh, they, they say that the, the, uh, the choices should be at a minimum and as uh, simple as possible. So these are the seven things you need to remember. These. <laughs> Just remember these nine. <laughs> these seven commandments. The buoyant emergency ascent or emergency buoyant ascent. The EBA. Regain control. You're out of air. You overcome your primal response to race to the surface. You regain your capacity to think. Respond. You have a choice for dependent or independent action. You quickly ascertain that dependent action is out of the question. Your buddy is too far away. You realize that you must engage in independent action. Yeah, I guess it's an option. It's an option. I mean, better option would be... Well, we won't even go well, there. Well, yeah, because... we're not going to go there. Of course, we're, this is this is assuming yes. that everybody screwed the pooch, so to say. Yeah. React. You have chosen independent action. Act immediately and decisively. React to your training. Now they've given us three things here already, which all <laughs> seem. <laughs> when it says you haven't really done anything the, yet, the, it's all going on up in your head. In the, in the paragraph before it says simple. Mm-hmm. But the first three things... Simple as possible. Minimum actions. These all three are about the same thing. Yes. You should think about reacting. You should prepare for your reaction. It's time to start reacting. Now you should react. <laughs> Release your ballast system. If you have a weight belt, make sure the belt is held away at arm's length from your body before it is dropped. The weight belt must not be allowed to catch on any part of your diving system. Very important if you're trying to dump your weights. Yeah. Catching on your fins, because usually you were standing up. Yeah. So you would, and I remember, you know, you and had to teach that. You had to pull going, off. Ah! <laughs> and you're actually sinking further. Exactly. <laughs> like that was one of the things. Like I remember teaching it. You know, you'd uh, you teach. Okay, so you know you're gonna look up, reach up, mm-hmm. start swimming up, make the ah sound. You know, control the, the dumping of the gas mm-hmm. out of Rotating the, the BCD, you know, to control your yeah. rate of ascent. But everybody, as soon as you did it, you're out of there, they go, uh, uh-huh. and then they go, <laughs> completely dump the whole BCD of, of gas, right? And then they go, ah, uh, and I would just always let them just like sit there and they'd, they'd, they they'd sink, 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 yeah. sink, 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 they sink to the bottom. They start breathing again. They give me an okay. I'm like, no, not okay. You're, you're def- Dumbass. <laughs> you're supposed to be going up to the surface. The difference of real deeper. life is you can't breathe again. <laughs> so you, you get to the surface, right? We take them to the surface. I'm like, okay, so the point is to come up. Yes. <laughs> not dump all the gas on your BCD and sink down. Yeah. You had that. Oh. That and the, uh, they've screamed out all the gas in their lungs in like two feet. It's like, ah, <laughs> 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 okay. All right. That's where, where I came up with the- And then I would the, yell uh, at them. I'd be like, how are you going to say, come from the land of the ice and snow? <laughs> You're all out of air, man. <laughs> Exhale. Tilt your head up and put your hand up. Begin a smooth, controlled outflow of air. Tilting your head up will ensure that your airway is straight so excess air may readily escape your lungs. Remember Boyle's Law. The air in your lungs will expand as you ascend because of the diminishing water pressure. Remember to maintain a smooth, controlled stream of bubbles throughout the ascent. And ascend. Ascend to the surface as fast as you can. 
This is the only time you would ever exceed the 60 feet per minute ascent rate. The reason for violating the proper ascent rate is obvious. Your time to complete the ascent is limited. You are not moving to the surface out of control. You have enough time if you follow proper procedure. You have thought through your situation and are getting to the surface in the safest manner considering the conditions. And then once again, they say, arch out. Arch out at the last 15 to 10 feet to slow your ascent. So, um, yeah, I remember, you know, talking to friends who were instructors down in the Caribbean. Yeah. And they hated this skill, right, on open waters because all the... I hated all, it. Although, I all they the have to be an instructor in the Caribbean to hate it. I was like, well, no, oh, I mean, well, it'd be, it's a little bit different. And, and I agree. I mean, it sucks for an instructor to have an open water weekend. You got to do, you know, you're up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You got to do, you know, a, a ton of those, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone, though, it, it, at least they're generally with your student that you've had in the open water yeah. that you can mm-hmm. probably rule a, a bunch of the mistakes out a, so that yeah. you can get, get it over with. You get a mishmash. From... <laughs> well, you get, you're the instructor down in the Caribbean who's yeah. got the, the, the guy that did the dip and dunk, we, right. you know, weekend class. And instructors, re- I don't care. I'm not doing the open water. It's not my name on the card. Later. Right. See, see you later. Go do it. Thanks for the money and the memories. Go do your dives. Yeah, so they would get these guys coming down, and they'd have to do just a ton of those yeah. emergency ascents all weekend long. Just Plus, you got to work with them up their body to like get it help. right. They don't, you know, like the guys who start to swim but only get like five feet and basically they can't go any further you're going right then they want to inflate their bcd you're like you can't you can't do that you should start from neutral <laughs> in the first place well yeah then exactly. you've got so you've got to teach them about a proper ascent anyway well if you're diving all day anyway and then you're doing that yeah top it off it's, that's really tough on you you know you're not doing proper ascents and you're just up and down up and down which we already know that's not good on you it's not good on you, mate. No, a dozen, a dozen yeah. fast ascents, because even though it's a controlled ascent, it's and those stu- and those students are mm-hmm. are trying to control it at sixty yeah. feet per minute, no, you know, not more like one hundred and twenty. Yeah. All of them are going way too mm-hmm. quick, and, and as an instructor, not only that, you're like you're trying to mm-hmm. uh, either either drag them up because they've or dumped, keep them from you know, going, <laughs> or keep them from yeah. dragging your ass up at. Two hundred and fifty mm-hmm. feet per minute. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a fight and a battle, over and over and over and over and over again. You know, when I was doing the big classes, that's I would I would go in. And that's the first thing we would do. Like go over. Okay, we're going down. We're knocking out ceases, and then we'll get on with all the other skills. Yeah, you know that's that's a good way to go because you got all that shit out of the way. Now you can slowly you can do a nice. Yeah, rather than doing two two or three dives and oh we got to get ceases done too. At the last thing today, I'm gonna do, uh, I'm gonna do a dozen yeah. fast ascents. Yeah, drive home 20 minutes on the highway. Got to pull off at the rest area for a, for a nap. <laughs> Some O2. I need, I need two aspirin, a large Gatorade. Yes, and a bottle of O2, please. Well, I can remember that too. Is uh, so this is McDonald's? You're just whooped. You're whooped after it. You're like, what the hell? But I'm sure that's a big part yeah, of the, it. Yeah, just because mm-hmm. it kicks your body's ass. Okay, let's. Um, I got a doozy of a story here. This is cool. This oh, is something that I boy. really want to get into in depth, but it's it's a big undertaking, and oh, this is just a really cool no. story out of America's forgotten quest to live and work on the ocean floor. A book by Ben Hellworth called Sea Lab. So, in chapter one of this book that I got from 
my good buddy Nathan told me about it, gave me it to read. It's a big book, ton of cool stuff in here. It's a I've been trying to to get fully into it. It's just been too busy. But this first chapter is pretty sweet. It talks about uh, prior to C Lab dealing with a uh, military commander George Bond. Um, but chapter one is called A Deep Escape. And the book starts out talking about 300 feet down, deeper than most divers were equipped to go, the World War II era submarine archer fish prepared to release two passengers into a dim sea with little more than the breath they held in their lungs. A spate of foul weather and strong currents had complicated some trial runs, but now, early on the first day of October 1959, the sun came up with just a few wispy clouds on the horizon. In calm water, the sub set out from the U.S. Navy base at Key West, heading southwest into the Gulf of Mexico. The mission's unusual aim was to prove that a trapped submariner could reach the distant surface on his own and live to tell about it. No escape quite like this had ever been made, and not everyone was convinced it was a good idea to try. But one of the passengers... Commander George Bond, a Navy doctor, had argued for attempting to make the escape. It was typical of him. He had also argued that he should be the one to do it. So this is like your buddy Bob mm-hmm. Padilla, right? But what, yes. what they were talking about doing, they had to leave the the, they had to the leave bell. A bell. They went down down in scuba to a bell, took off the gear, and got inside the bell and waited for their turn. And the instructor would take them outside of the bell. You'd hold on to the. Uh, Basically, you're holding on to the bell, a ring that's welded onto the bell. He'd hit you in the gut, and he'd go. Boom! This is how he explained it to me. Now, you think the hit in the gut was was just, you know, like military uh, getting your ass no, kicked a little bit it because, was, uh, because that's how it was mm-hmm. back in the day? Like, I think it was to ensure. I think it was to ensure that there was no air in their lungs when they left. Yeah, They but, pretty much guaranteed that they... Even if they held the breath, there wasn't any air in there, or very little. You know, they would still probably not embolize. You know, because the gas would have enough room to expand. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, I mean, I would think that the it would be better mm-hmm. to have another Navy instructor sitting at thirty feet, and as you pass thirty feet. He just poof, whacked punched you then, again. Whacked you then. But, that would be, the, more, be still, the better time for the punch, wouldn't you? Think? You still went from four to two. You still did, ha- right. and you could double your gas yeah, yeah. size. So that's still four to two. At us, that's just, rough. I'm just thinking if you yeah. leave, going uh, and then just to to reassure <laughs> that you did get it all. You just want another whack, but I think you have to stop him. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know the intricate details of of the whole exercise. Uh, I do know. That, you know, Navy divers come out very confident. It's not oh, no. politically correct or friendly. Correct. Right? Correct. But yeah. it produces uh, a, very a diver. A strong-minded right? and confident diver. Sure. Yeah. And I don't think they, I don't think, especially in that time, they did not concentrate on finesse or technique like we would now. But if you combined a Navy diver with the finesse and technique that we have now, I think you'd have a, an incredibly strong diver, an incredible uh, diver, uh, right? Yeah, an incredibly strong dive teammate to have in the water exactly to, to exactly. really accomplish yes. a work dive as well as fun dives george bond was 43 though his soft features and jowls made him look older he was a couple of inches over six feet barrel chested and thickly built with close cropped salt and pepper hair and owlish dark eyebrows 
bonded, joined the Navy. I have a crush. All these ladies would be calling George is so dreamy. Sounds mature yet hot. Bond had joined the Navy just a few years before, but he already had a reputation for being a maverick with a fondness for showboating. He preferred not to be photographed without his pipe. Daring, gregarious, kind-hearted, even his distractors found him difficult not to like. He often lapsed into the disarming Appalachian brogue of the clients he had served not so long ago as a country doctor. His resonant baritone, noticeably seasoned, somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line, had a soothing, unhurried intonation of a storyteller sent from heaven. It was a voice that had served him well as he... As a lay preacher back home in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So in like this couple of couple of sentences, basically. I don't know if that was one long run-on sentence or a couple of sentences, but we know more about George Bond than um, I know about my wife, pretty much. <laughs> it's a pretty uh, in-depth description is what I'm getting at. I we got to paint I, the picture. I already like the guy. James. He's, uh, James. I like the guy. George Bond, is, he's, uh, he's already grown... As part of your family, he's like, this guy is... Uh, I want somebody to, to describe me one day and talk about my resonant baritone. <laughs> Intonation. That soothed the, the patients. My barrel chest and my uh, <laughs> my salt and pepper hair. I'd like, I'd like a description about me. His like that hairy one. legs. <laughs> <laughs> now, Size nine and a half feet. What? <laughs> <laughs> Now, Dr. Bond had recently become head of the medical research laboratory at the U.S. Naval Submarine Base at New London, Connecticut. Most American submariners got their specialized schooling at the base, which was named for New London, but was actually a neighboring Groton on the eastern bank of the Thames River. Scientists employed at the base's medical lab concerned themselves with a variety of physiological puzzles, such as those related to submarine escape. In the early years of the U.S. submarine service, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was no procedure and virtually no hope for submariners trapped in downed subs, even in relatively shallow water. Safety features in the early boats were primitive at best, and gradual asphyxiation or drowning were often the survivors' macabre options. But after three submarines sank in the 1920s, newer American subs were fitted with the equivalent of emergency exits, known as escape trunks. By the late 1930s, a drum-shaped pod called the McCann Rescue Chamber was devised that could be lowered like an elevator from the surface ship and with the aid of divers, locked onto the sub's escape hatch. But if the chamber couldn't reach a sunken submarine, the sailors inside needed something like an underwater version of a parachute to escape on their own. Interesting. Yeah, pretty cool stuff, eh? Do you, do you know any submariners? I have... I have a... Uh... Well, one of the guys in uh, commercial school was a submariner. Oh, really? And he talked about um, they had to go through similar training uh, as Bob did with that. Free so was ascent. he? Uh, was he? Was he going through commercial school just uh, for like a, He's a, a, a an accreditation for a job after the military? Or uh... he was already out. He, you know, he was a vet like I was at the time. We we got some money from being a vet. You know, to to go to school. He was older, a little bit older than I was. I was like 27 at the time. Did he have a barrel chest? He had uh, curly salt and pepper hair, and he spoke he with soft, a Scottish brogue. Did he have any <laughs> soft features and jowls make him look yeah, a little older than he actually was? He did. 
uh, he was dreamy. He was a wee bit dreamy. Actually, he was married. He was the only married guy in the class. Um, but he was a little crazy, which I think most submariners are, if you, if you get to know them from what I've been told. But he talked about he had to do a, a free ascent uh, test as part of their training yeah. to, to be able to be called a submariner to get your, your little, I don't know what it's called, in the Air Force or in all the military. When, you, when you're air crew, you get your wings. When you're a submariner, you get something else. It, and you, it's a little uh, badge, you know, you, that, that says, hey. Flippers. You get your no, flippers. No, those are, uh, the divers get um, little hard diver. Hat, with hard, a hard hat. Well, it depends. If you're a salvage diver, yes. But if you're a uh, scuba, you get, I've got a little f- frogman pin. Okay. Bob gave me his little frogman pin. He's like, uh, but, yeah, uh, you get something for being a oh, submariner. Awesome. But you got to go through a bunch of training like that. Several methods evolve to enable the sailor to bail out of his doomed vessel and get himself to the surface. From the archer fish, Bond wanted to test one that had been borrowed a few years earlier from the British called the Buoyant Assisted Free Ascent, or just Buoyant Ascent. It was also known less formally as the Blow and Go. Holding your breath underwater might feel like holding on to life, but not if you're swimming to the surface after inhaling a lung full of highly compressed air. The final breath taken in the escape trunk just before leaving the archer fish would expand from something like 5 quarts to nearly 13 gallons en route to the surface, a phenomenon explained by Boyle's Law, named for the 17th century Irish physicist Robert Boyle, assuming temperature remains the same, as pressure increases, volume decreases, as pressure decreases, volume increases, so it is that a lungful of compressed air inhaled at any depth will expand tremendously as a person approaches the surface and the surrounding water pressure gradually drops. A submarine escapee, therefore, had to learn to exhale forcefully and consistently, like an exuberant tuba player, all the way to the surface. A strange sensation that took some getting used to. Cool. Yeah, so we all learned that in basic scuba, Boyle's Law. Well, you don't really even learn it as Boyle's Law anymore. They just, you know, they it's too complicated. <laughs> we don't want to call it a law. <laughs> don't put this name with law in there because you'll just freak them out. It's like, don't teach the kids math. Don't call it math because it freaks too many people out. It's, they'll go to their little safe spots. Just say we're going to put things together today and take things away. Right. They just tell you don't hold your breath. <laughs> Never hold your breath um, instead of going through Boyle's Law. But that's what it is, right? Uh, there's an inverse relationship between pressure and volume. You know, I, I guess the reasoning behind that is humans do not uh, learn by understanding anything. Well, I, I, I would I'm s- being a sarcastic we, bastard. No, no. Uh, we, it, it's because the, the mainstream is watering down the program so much that you don't have to really know all the important stuff to get the little certification card right. to, so that you can buy gear and go on the on the boat. Yeah, yeah. you don't need any understanding of what you're well, doing. Well, there was a yeah. day where you, you, you needed to know the science. Yeah, still should be a day where you need to know what you're doing. But there's also there was also a day where you, you needed to know that stuff to get out of high school. <laughs> <laughs> Again, <laughs> I reiterate... Would be nice to know as you enter the world how things work, you know, the yeah. basic understanding of the world. 
The gravest danger during an escape to the surface is from an arterial gas embolism. If not adequately exhaled, the expanding air will backfire into the pulmonary vein, sending emboli in the form of tiny bubbles to the brain. The consequences could include seizures, slurred speech, loss of vision, loss of muscle coordination, unconsciousness, even instant death. Now, reading this, I found really interesting because I'd never heard this part explained like this. But he mentions that the human lungs aren't wired to the autonomic nervous system. So even if perilously overinflated, they won't set off any... Um, Say that again. Yeah, the human lungs aren't wired to the autonomic nervous system. So even if perilously overinflated, they won't set off any synaptic sirens and zap the symptomatic. brain. Symptomatic. Symptomatic. Synaptic. Oh, synaptic. I'm yes. sorry. So that's something different. Yeah. They won't set off any synaptic sirens and zap the brain with pain signals the way other body parts do, like a finger on a hot stove. From 300 feet down, if you didn't blow and go just right, you could kill yourself as surely as if you stayed on the stranded submarine. But yeah, I, I didn't realize that the lungs did not have a pain, a pain. Something to, to say, a pain open trigger. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you can just it, hold It's just going to go. And uh, you really don't even feel it. I don't Your know Your brain doesn't yeah. tell you. I think you feel when the lung pops, you're just not feeling the... You're not getting the trigger, which is the pain, to tell Telling your lungs you. to open up. Right, right, airway. right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, pretty, pretty wild. I never realized I that's what they mean to that it. extent. Yeah, yeah. But I think it hurts. The probably the after effect. I think it hurts when that when it's happening. Like when you're going down too deep, too fast, and you're feeling the pain get greater and greater and greater on your ears, telling you, "Oh you, shit, you waited too long to equalize. You better stop. Go back up a few feet. Let that pressure re-expand so you can come yeah. back down." Like going up, holding your breath, you're not going to get that that sensation of your lungs are going to explode, your lungs are going to explode a little bit further, it's getting sore, hurt, it's going to hurt, and poof, they explode. It's just, it's going to happen. You're not going to get that building pain. I don't know, man. From what they say here. Well, I, the, I think what they mean is the synaptic, meaning the, the thing between your nerve cells that sends the trigger, sends the signal, that's a synapse. That's not going to send a response of opening your airway but i think i think you do get the pain like your lungs are getting bigger than the container they're in and it's pushing it out i think you do get some pain but i i don't know we could uh i don't know ask people if you've ever had a lung over expansion in injury did it hurt as it was happening but yeah i think it, i know i've seen you know popped lungs before and the people are in pain Oh, I, yeah. I, well, I yeah, think, well, you've yeah, seen, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the uh, the the pain, the pain definitely after <laughs> well, yeah, after yeah. the uh, lung explosion occurs. Yeah, yeah. So prior to Bond's attempted escape from the Archerfish, about the deepest experience that he or anyone else had with the blow and go technique came from inside the escape training tank at New London. The tank towered above everything else on the wharf and was the main attraction on base tours for anyone going through submarine school. The tank held the promise and fear of a rite of passage. Eleven stories high, it resembled a silo that might have been transplanted from a farm in the surrounding Connecticut countryside. But it was taller than a silo, and instead of a simple dome, it was topped with an octagonal cupola, which gave it the look of a misplaced airport control tower. Built into the sides of the tank were several airlocks, similar to actual submarine escape tanks. 
A sailor could pass from the airlock into the tank water as if making a real escape and practice reaching the surface unharmed. The deepest entry point was near the bottom of the tank at almost 120 feet. Most trainees made their required mock escapes from a lock at 50 feet. But the confluence of physics and physiology is such that a blow-and-go escape begun at that depth could be every bit as life-threatening as one from the bottom of the tank. During training sessions, half a dozen instructors hover in the tank water, trailing each trainee like pilotfish. A doctor was on duty too in case of an accident, and Dr. Bond became a proficient escape artist himself. So these were the, the, the trainings that all these guys had to do. So basically going through submarine. If right. you're gonna be on a submarine, you're gonna have to go through this tower, tower blow and go. Exactly. And they're saying, you know, most of them occurring at fifty feet is where most of them are doing them from to be a submariner. Some of them going from one twenty. I'm having second thoughts that my uh, instructor in nineteen eighty seven did not <laughs> go <laughs> do one from hundred and twenty feet in his uh in his IDC. Yeah. I think there was a little bit of exaggeration. See, I never got that with with old Randy. He was very, very, very straight. But he did some. He dove with Sheck. He's a cave diver. He was into diving. Sailors often asked whether it would be possible to blow and go from say 240 feet, the depth at which the USS Squalus sank during a test dive off the coast of New Hampshire, in 1939. The best answer that Doctor Bond or anyone could give was that yes. In theory, you should be able to safely blow and go in the open sea from a depth of at least 300 feet or so, but no one had ever done it. Bond decided it was time to put theory to the test. Would you do that? Would you be like, yeah, I'll go check. Hell no. 300 feet. (laughs) I'm going from my one ADA inside the sub. You're going to get pressurized down to 300, get outside, and then blow and go. Uh, So they go on to, to talk about... Getting approval from the uh, from the admiral that was in command of the submarine force and this other guy, this other sailor Tuck, who he was going to do this dive with, or not this dive, but this ascent with. They talk about the two of them together. There were no guarantees with escape training. You're going to like this. This is good. <laughs> As Bond learned one Friday in the fall of 1954, when he met a fellow Navy doctor named Charles Aquadro. Charlie Aquadro, whose very name suggested a love of the life aquatic, was a medical officer with the underwater demolition team, the progenitor of the Navy SEALs. Aquadro was an experienced diver, 14 years younger than Bond, lean and athletic, raised and educated in Kentucky and Tennessee. He was polite but playful, with a disarmingly gentle demeanor and a ready smile, a boyish southern gentleman. The two doctors hit it off immediately at least in part because of their common southern roots. Aquadro's UDT group was soon scheduled to make a practice escape from the bottom of the training tank at 120 feet. Bond watched the UDT drill as Charlie Aquadro took his turn, blowing a steady stream of bubbles, looking good all the way up. Aquadro reached the surface, climbed out of the water, stood up on the deck around the top of the tank, said a few words, seemed to be fine, and then collapsed. Unconscious, Aquadro had somehow embolized himself. As Dr. Bond knew from his recent training, the surest remedy for quashing menacing bubbles, the cause of the embolism, is to put the ailing person back under pressure. Yeah. So, so he's, <laughs> there you go. 
Oh, he'd say it with a country accent. Well, y'all, that's how you do it. There's how you do it. <laughs> what was so hard about that, y'all? A quadro is down. A quadro is down. Oh, yeah. Or a quadro. So, yeah, so they uh, threw his ass in a chamber, took him back down. And um, recompressed him. Was he all right? He ended up being all right. Well, George Bond, you know, uh, rode in the chamber with him at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, 40 hours he was in that uh, uh, hyperbaric roller coaster, they called it, for 40 damn hours. He called it the hyperbaric roller coaster. So five years later, their paths would cross again as uh, a quadro was the submarine squadron medical officer down in Key West upon the USS Penguin which is where they were going to... Um, Named after the Batman? No, 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 we're uh, go oh. so <laughs> The Joker? The, <laughs> the Riddler, the USS Riddler. So he was the uh, uh, medical officer at 9 o'clock in the morning after a three-hour ride. The Archerfish submarine settled near the bottom at 322 feet. That put the outboard door of the escape trunk at 302 feet, deep enough to prove the point if it could be proved a messenger buoy was released to let the Penguin crew know where Bond and Tuck would appear. Barring any significant currents or catastrophes, the two men approached the forward torpedo room and the ladder leading up to the escape trunk. Tuck gestured for Bond to go first, part of a tongue-in-cheek ritual the two friends developed at the new London training tank. After you, courageous leader, Tuck said, y'all. <laughs> Thank you, brave follower, Bond replied. Jocularity. <laughs> Each wore only shorts, a diving mask, and a May West. That's how we did it back then, yo. That's right. That, so even uh, 300 feet, yeah. down, even though you're down in Key West, 300 feet, it's going to be so some cool, chilly. some chilly water. But they didn't care but back they didn't then. Get it. They're menly men. They are. I mean, especially compared to us They now. were barrel-chested. Barrel chested. Jowls and soft skin. Salt and pepper hair. Salt and peppered hair. <laughs> Many curly leg hairs abounded their lower legs. <laughs> Size 10 boot. Now, did you ever have to wear a Mae West? Yeah, I learned in the Mae West. Did you see that picture I have? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I learned in the Mae West. The old Mae West. You know, you know how the Mae West got its name? Uh, it was invented in the West during May. No. That's exactly During right. During the month of May. No, May West was uh, a rather bustly actress. Bustly. Bustly is the word I just invented, a, too. She was a bit of a sex symbol back in the day. Oh, May West, yeah. Didn't she do a thing with W.C. Fields? A little scene that kind of became famous? Yes, you're right. Okay. W.C. Fields oh. for uh, My Little Chickadee. My Little Chickadee. That's the, that was the line. <laughs> Something about My Little Chickadee. But anyways, back in the day, the uh, the life vest was inflatable, and it was given the name nickname the May West because the silhouette while you were wearing it made it look like you had a big old buxom rack like the old <laughs> screen legend May West. Ah. So Bond stashed his pipe, tobacco pouch, and a letter from his wife in a pocket of his May West. He and Tuck passed through the open hatch in the floor of the escape trunk as if crawling up into an attic the size of a broom closet. They sealed the hatch behind them. Tuck then opened the valve that allowed seawater to pour in. Tuck. At 68 degrees Fahrenheit, the water felt chilly as it rose around them. 
Well, it was chilly. Man, it was it's chilly, chilly man. It's cold water. <laughs> a palpable reminder that, that this escape would be for real. In the controlled environment of the training tank, the water was kept at a balmy 92 degrees. Quite a, quite a difference from, <laughs> from cracking open at the bottom. That's why they are, we're all used to like, yeah, we just got these issued shorts right. that make me look pretty cool. Right, right. Uh, I need to get me a set of those shorts. You know, I looked for some for a couple of years and I couldn't find any. Of course. We have to hit the Navy yes. uh, 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 surplus here. For several minutes, the water noisily spilled in until it reached their chins. Then Bond shut the vent leading to the torpedo room. Tuck opened a valve and high-pressure air whooshed in, warming the remaining air pocket around their heads. The pressure rose fast. As planned, Bond was not surprised to feel pain in his eardrums and instinctively cleared his ears, as divers do, to spare his eardrums from sharp pain and possibly rupture as the pressure around his body rose. Now, he had to be getting narked, narked to, the, to his gourd. Rapid, rapid, decompre- rapid compression down to 300 feet on air. You're going to be later. Dude. Dude. <laughs> Let's go up, I'm so man. wasted. Let's go up. <laughs> Guess what that was? That was my Let's skull, go. man. <laughs> I remember that movie, The Abyss, when they, uh, uh yeah. didn't he like do a, do an emergency ascent from like 500 billion feet deep, like, and then shoot all the way to the surface and the aliens came and saved them? Spoiler alert! Uh, Did like, you do? Well, I know well, the, the ship. The ship, the ship did, came up, but that they was were supposed, they were like, aliens. Oh my god! Yeah, we're, we're gonna, gonna be... die. We're gonna explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explosive yeah. decompression. But yeah, yeah. Even uh, spoiler alert: if we ruin the abyss for you, we apologize. <laughs> even Ed Harris made it. He was outside in a suit, you know. But right, right. Not a, not a breathing liquid oxygen. Liquid, yeah. Experimental. After half a minute. Tuck turned off the air and the trunk fell silent. Now they were breathing under pressure equal to the water pressure outside, about 150 pounds per square inch. From that moment, the clock was ticking. To test for signs of a nitrogen-induced mental haze, Bond quizzed himself on his telephone number, his middle name, (laughs) the names of his kids, Gail, George Jr., Judy, David. Finger. (laughs) Eyeballs. <laughs> look. Look. Cheetos. <laughs> I got the secret of the universe, man. <laughs> I just remember the secrets of the universe, man. <laughs> it's like really awesome, dude. I can count all the way to potato. <laughs> <laughs> With the pressure equalized between the flooded compartment and the seawater outside, there was no longer any great resistance on the trunk's escape hatch. They inflated their May Wests, and Bond pushed open the escape hatch, which was about waist high in the side of the trunk. The courageous leader took a last breath from the remaining air pocket. His brave follower did the same. Each man's lungful of air was now a time bomb, a massive gas embolism waiting to happen. As soon as they passed through the hatch into the darkened sea outside, they began to exhale vigorously. Yeah, because you're gonna, that's 10, 10 atas. So you're gonna, you have 10 times that volume. That's a lot of gas, yeah, yeah. right? That's a lot of gas to be exhaling. Tuck grabbed hold of Bond's life vest belt so that they would stay together. In their inflated May West, they ascended briskly, like helium balloons set free on a breezy day. 
A valve on the May West allowed the expanding air to whistle out so the life jacket wouldn't explode on the way up. Like their lungs, their life jackets started out with 10 times as much air as they would be able to hold on the surface. Bond raised his left arm like Superman in flight to help steer them in a straight line to the surface. They were rising at about six feet per second in a great hail of bubbles. It's a pretty fast ascent rate. It's cruising, man. It's cruising Six up. Six feet per second. That's 360 feet a minute. So it would take you less than a minute to get to the surface. Uh, <laughs> you could do the well. You couldn't because it's less than a minute. But you'd get a you'd probably get a good quarter of the quarter of the way through the song. <laughs> Bond could feel his May West ballooning as the water pressure decreased. He worked his legs and arms slightly, checking for signs of the bends as he and Tuck made their swift ascent. They blew forcefully and steadily. The trick was to exhale enough to avoid embolizing themselves, as Charlie Aquadro had done, but not so much that they ran out of breath before surfacing. They were used to the strange sensation of continuous blowing, and from 300 feet down, more than twice the depth of the training tank, the sensation was stranger still. Bond felt as though their ascent was taking an awfully long time, but he figured that was just because he had never risen through 300 feet of water. Fortunately, the current was light, at 180 feet, the water turned noticeably warmer, and they passed through a thermocline. Visibility improved, and Bond could make out the underside of the waiting penguin. With about 100 feet of water still between them and the surface, Tuck sensed that he had nothing left to blow. He had been exhaling like mad for more than half a minute. Experienced had taught Tuck not to panic, and within another few feet, the air in his lungs swelled anew, and he kept blowing. The final 30 feet or so, which should take less than 10 seconds to cover, could be the most dangerous of the entire run. In those last 30 feet, the volume of air remaining in the lungs would double. double. True, true facts. So from 300 feet all the way up to 132 feet, the, so, the gas so is going to... 10 to 5 is going right, to double, yeah, yeah. right. right. The, the gas is going to double the same as it's going to double in the last 30 feet to the exactly. surface. Exactly. So there you go. So you had... That's what I'm saying, man. You need the Navy puncher. You need the Navy boxer sitting at 30 feet <laughs> oh, for, that, for that last <laughs> uppercut. <laughs> for the last doubling. <laughs> yeah, but it still does the same thing from... Well, it does from 100 to... So you need one puncher at the bottom. You need a second puncher at, at 100, 30, 100 feet. 30 and feet. another one. Yeah, yeah. 53 seconds after Bond let go of the archer fish, he and Tuck broke the surface. So less than a minute from 300 feet up. That's 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 a little over three hundred feet a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Let me calculate that. <laughs> carry the carry the two. I get the. Uh, they gratefully gulped a fresh sea level atmosphere. They climbed to the <laughs> top of the penguin. Said that's <laughs> how y'all do it, bitches. Kaplunk <laughs> <And laughs> crashed down on their knees. No. They gratefully gulped the fresh sea level atmosphere at 14.7 pounds per square inch. Of course, as Charlie Aquadro's accident at Pearl Harbor demonstrated, Bond and Tuck were not necessarily all right. They might still be struck by an embolism or possibly a case of the bends, which could take hours to manifest itself. So they didn't get all like cocky. They didn't get all cocky. Oh, wait a minute. No, 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 we're no, not no, done. No, no, no. This is 1959, <laughs> dude. They're getting cocky. Just wait. Hello, ladies. 
Doctors watched carefully as the two escape artists were plucked from the still blue water and raised onto the diving platform of the penguin deck. Still dripping wet, good old George Bond produced his pipe, smiled, and lit it up as photographers snapped his picture. That's old George for you. There you go. Hello, ladies. A mere 300 feet. Did they they go on to describe his hair slicked back in a salt and pepper greasy? Always forever known at being able to get up at 300 feet per second, uh, 300 (laughs) feet per minute. (laughs) The twinkle in his eyes sparkled. George Bond and Cyril Tuckfield received widespread praise for their daring escape. They were awarded the Legion of Merit, and their feat was noted in Time magazine the New York Times, and their hometown newspapers. Bond had a lengthy first-person account published in True, a reasonably respectable men's magazine. He was... <laughs> not, reasonable, <laughs> quote-unquote, reasonably respectable. Not like that smut Playboy. <laughs> exactly. The hussies and smut of Playboy. He was also a guest on NBC's Today Show. And on Conquest, a new Sunday evening science program on CPS. So they, they were kind of uh, national heroes. Yeah. Became, to a small yeah, extent. Yeah, anyway. definitely uh, became uh, national heroes. So then they, they kind of go on in this like, kind of to talk about uh, their lives and their lives afterwards and what that leads up to. And, um, you know, old George Bond later went on to be known he as. He wrote um, the Patty Dive Manual. He later, <laughs> he later, particularly the emergency boy innocent. <laughs> no, he later became known as uh, Papa Topside during Papa, the Sea Lab days. Papa Topside. Now that's a good. That's name. a good nickname. That's an that awesome good? name. I want to be known as Papa Topside. <laughs> Papa Topside. So he, um, yeah, he uh, stayed on with the uh, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Naval Submarine Base, and uh, continued working with uh, with diving stuff. Uh, um, in addition to the submarines, the diving game, they called it. Soon after taking his new lab post, he began plotting the sunken jet escapes and the uh, precedented 300-foot blow-and-go from the archerfish that we just talked about. These acts were testaments to his love of the game and mere prologue to Bond's grandest plan yet, a plan buoyed by his vision of a future in which man would live in the sea. Under the sea, yeah. And hmm. uh, that's where we get into good old Sea Lab. But as I was reading through this book, that story of that epic blow and go right there, you know, it just got me thinking of uh, all those old stories of instructors yes. beating their chests about who had the, the, the deepest Just sit down. Ascent. George Bond is here. George <laughs> and Tuck are here. So you with your bald head can, can sit down next to George with his... Curly salt and pepper hair and his sparkly blue eyes and his size ten and a half boots. I don't know if you notice his boot size increases with every story. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you guys uh, like that one. I really dug that one. I really enjoyed. I love that. hearing I mean, that. This book yeah. has got a lot of really cool, interesting stuff that I want to. The early days. Yeah, stuff, yeah. Uh, the, like, paving the way, paving the blazing way for sure, the trail. Man. Yeah, yeah. Is there any mention in that book, since I, I haven't read it, you've read it, is uh, there any mention of Jacques? Is Jacques, like, even mentioned? Actually, they've got him in here quite a bit. Okay. Uh, and uh, dealing with undersea dwellings. Okay, great. And, uh, yeah, Philippe Cousteau. Philippe, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they find their way into this book as well. Some cool stuff. So we'll get it's back not to you a guys. Diving book without the Cousteaus. That's right, man. We'll we'll get back to you guys on some more Sea Lab. In the meantime, guys, we're we're close to breaking a hundred reviews. Get we out just there. need one more. No, we Two need. Uh, I think we're at ninety four. Okay, six so, of you clowns. Get out there. <laughs> go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. And by the way. We have a little gift for you. If you, oh yeah, if you, this is going to be. If good. we've read your, if you've given us a review and it's cool enough that we've read it in the air, yeah, send us an email uh, telling us that you left us a comment and that we read your comment on the air, and we will send you a little gift, like this new one that we just got from Mo Bud. Mo Bud, your computer is going to beep at you. Five stars he gives us. <laughs> Mo Bud says, the best diving podcast going. I look forward to the sarcasm and weekly complaints about training. It's solid content and a unique perspective on diving. They give excellent advice to new divers, like the first step to solve any problem underwater is to pee in your wetsuit, <laughs> which I wish I would have known years ago. Good advice. Mo Bud, get Good out advice. there. Send us, a, send us an email uh, reminding us of this uh, awesome comment with your address. We're going to send you a cool gift. And I hope uh, there aren't more people getting into diving podcasts, you know, like somebody who's really good at podcasting because we might <laughs> might get brushed aside, <laughs> fortunately. And uh, one more from David Moulet, five stars, informative and funny. Dave says, I look forward to this podcast every week. I have learned and laughed a lot listening to James and Brando. Keep up the great work, guys. Please no kisses or f- split fin slaps. <laughs> Um, no, man, no, Dave. If I see you, if I see you out on the out on the uh, the dive site, big old hug and smooch for me. I'll, Brando, give I'll you definitely slap your ass with a split fin. <laughs> I'm sure I can borrow one from somebody. So, Dave Moulet, again, send us an email in the comments. Remind us of uh, of this uh, review, and we're gonna send a little gift. Hope you guys dig yes. it. We got uh, something fun to release here really, really soon. In the meantime, yeah, something new on the market, something that's not out there yet, uh, but it's new, and it, I think it's going to be huge. All right, everybody. On that note, safe diving to everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Yes, safe diving, folks. It's Jules under Sea Lodge now, but it was Sea Lab. That's kind of cool. I thought Sea Lab was at that um, park over in Pensacola, Florida. It's uh, not in Pensacola. Uh, uh, Panama Beach, The Navy History Historical Museum? I thought, it, I thought it was the one on the key. Jules under Sea Lodge was Sea Lab. No, it's on display at the Museum of Man in the Sea in Panama City Beach, Florida. What is Jules under Sea Lodge, then? Not a hundred percent sure. That was—it's an old retired. Uh,
Jules Underscore. Let me see what it says. I don't want to be. Uh... Oh, it was the La Chalupa Research Laboratory. <laughs> 